Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, rebuilding the British Army. As the UK gives tanks and artillery to Ukraine, the head of the army says it will temporarily weaken us. And the Defence Secretary drops another big hint. He's rethinking cuts. Even as we give Challenger 2 tanks, I shall at the same time be reviewing the number of Challenger 3 conversions to consider whether the lessons of Ukraine suggest that we need a larger tank fleet. As NATO's top military decision-makers meet, we'll assess the hardball messaging from the Alliance's top operational commander. Cyber, information operations and so on, very important. But if the other guy shows up with the tank, you better have a tank. And the bionic hand that could soon help hundreds of wounded Ukrainian troops. It's got two myoelectric sensors inside. That's how it's controlled. The person wearing it would be contracting their muscles thinking about doing these kind of movements and they'll translate to similar movements on the bionic hand. Britain is about to hand over a small but significant chunk of its heaviest land war fighting hardware to Ukraine. This includes a squadron of Challenger 2 tanks with armoured recovery and repair vehicles. We will donate AS-90 guns to Ukraine this comprises a, battery, comprises a battery of eight guns at high readiness and two further batteries at varying states of readiness. The judgment that this is in the UK's best interests, because right now Ukraine needs them a lot more than we do. But it will temporarily weaken our army. Its head, the Chief of General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, told troops in an internal video message that while there can be no better cause... Our choice will impact on our ability to mobilise the army against the threat Russia presents and meet our NATO obligations. But Ukraine is not the only issue here. This comes on top of previous choices that had created capability risks. The integrated review in 2021 planned for almost a decade where some old equipment would be retiring well before its modern replacements arrive. Deputy Chief of the General Staff, Lieutenant General Sharon Naismith, faced MPs last week and conceded that plan looks somewhat out of date now. In the Future Soldier plan, it was absolutely about a decade of delivery. Okay. And there was known capability risks that we took yes. Yes. as we formulated that plan. Right. I think through the lens today of war in Ukraine on land, some of those decisions feel very uncomfortable. The plan always was to rebuild the army, but the Ukraine war has now made that job bigger and more urgent. Well, let's talk to retired Brigadier Ben Barry, former director of British Army Staff, now senior fellow for land warfare at the IISS. Good to speak to you today, Brigadier Barry. Uh, let's start talking with, about the hardware package being sent to Ukraine. 14 Challenger 2 tanks out of a fleet of 227. How big a dent will that make in the British Army's ability to go and fight if needed? Well, it will be a modest dent, and we shouldn't forget that it's not just the tanks that will be sent, it'll be a logistic package, spares, engines and major assemblies, and lots of, lots of ammunition. Now, it's the logistics and the ammunition that's possibly the greatest risk. Uh, the British have quite a few Challenger 2s, but there's been evidence over the last decade that they don't have sufficient stockpiles to be able to rapidly deploy much more than a battle group, let alone a brigade. And what about the 30 or so AS-90 artillery guns? Well, remember that AS-90, which is still an excellent self-propelled gun, albeit beginning to show its age, 
Uh, AS-90 was bought for an army that had five heavy brigades. It's now only got two armoured brigades, so there's a lot of surplus AS-90s. Whether those surplus AS-90s are at sufficient standard of readiness to quickly be sent to Ukraine, I think is doubtful. But in theory, at least, finding those AS-90s shouldn't be too difficult and shouldn't have uh, too high an effect on readiness. But again, uh, the effect of the artillery ammunition being supplied... Um, that may well have a short-term impact on the British stockpile of artillery ammunition. And on those 100,000 artillery shells that have already been handed over and now we're donating 100,000 more, do you have any idea at what rate they can be replenished? Well, I don't. Um, Quite clearly, a lot of artillery ammunition has been fired by Ukraine and they've completely depleted their stockpiles and are dependent on new artillery ammunition coming in from overseas. Now, the international coalition that supports Ukraine with ammunition and weapons, it's being very, very cagey about the grand total of material it's sending. And for reasons of operational security, the Ukrainians aren't saying much either. There's probably quite a bit of secrecy going on in this because at the same time, Russia is scouring international arms markets to get hold of ammunition compatible with their weapons as well. But the army's capability concerns are not just about what is being gifted to Ukraine, it's also about the gaps created in the current future soldier reorganisation. Can you just give us a broad overview of those gaps? Well, okay, I'd start off just by saying there's a lot about future soldier that makes sense. The brigade combat team concept, the global response force, the replacement of older patches with new AH-64E, 77 Brigade and the Ranger Regiment. All of those make a lot of sense. But when you looked at the British Army's armoured warfare capability, in many ways, I'm afraid, future soldier reduces it. And the principal reductions that create risk are the reductions from three armoured brigades in three division to two armoured brigade combat teams that aren't getting any bigger. Also, the abandonment of the armoured infantry capability Currently, the division has armoured infantry battalions in Warrior, which everybody knows has a 30mm cannon turret. And that cannon turret proved decisive when Warrior has been used on operations in Desert Storm in Bosnia and in Operation Operation Telic and in Afghanistan. Now, the current plan is that that capability is given up and that the armoured infantry is replaced by mechanised infantry in an excellent new wheeled armoured vehicle, but an armoured vehicle that only has a remotely operated machine gun as its armament. So the British are voluntarily making the close combat capability of their single heavy division. They're they're reducing it. Now, Ukraine quite clearly has seen a lot of successful use of artillery by both sides, but there's no evidence from what I see of Ukraine um, that justifies reducing close combat capability and particularly armoured infantry capability. So what do you think giving up that armoured infantry capability will mean the army can't do any more? Well, its two remaining armoured brigade combat teams will have less firepower. You know, the battalions that have about 50 warriors with 30mm cannon, they'll have boxers, but they won't have their 30mm cannon. Now, in defence, that 30mm cannon has an invaluable role uh, taking on enemy light and medium armoured vehicles, allowing tanks to concentrate on defeating enemy tanks. 
And in the offence, that 30mm cannon is extremely useful for close fire support of in infantry attacks. And indeed, if, if, if that capability hadn't existed in Desert Storm, uh, the British Army would have taken a lot longer to clear Iraqi positions and would have incurred more casualties, in my just judgment. And the British Army would have also found it more difficult to accompany its missions in Bosnia and probably would have had more casualties. Well, let's take a, a theoretical scenario that Russian troops are seen building on the border of a NATO member. The alliance wants to surge land forces into that member country. What could the British Army do right now? And what could it do in 2030 when future soldier is supposed to be in place? OK, well, the British Army could fairly rapidly deploy uh, battle groups, both from 16 Air Assault Brigade and indeed from one of the High Redness Armoured Brigades. And I think I have to give great credit to the British Army here. Immediately after the Russian attack on Ukraine began, the British deployed two and a half extra battle groups to Europe and deployed them very quickly. Now, that included reinforcing Estonia. It included uh, 16 Brigade going to the Balkans and it even included a squadron of tanks going to Scandinavia. No other European army deployed so many forces across Europe so quickly. Now, the one risk, I think, is logistics, whether uh, the stop bars exist to actually um, support a, a complete brigade in a warfighting mission. But clearly, the exact detail is probably highly, highly classified. But, you know, right now, or last year, the British Army demonstrated that it was the premier army in Europe in terms of rapidly deploying. I'm not sure the army and the British government and Ben Wallace have been given all the credit they should have for that. In terms of those deployments, though, we've drawn a lot of it back to the UK since. Does that mean we can't actually sustain it for very long? Well, Europe is a big place. So if you had a huge British stockpile, say in Poland, it isn't clear that it would be in the right place to respond to the threat as it uh, manifested itself. But UK is well positioned to deploy forces uh, to Norway, uh, Sweden and Finland. And indeed, its existing base in Senelaga and its effectively its base in Estonia uh, means that it, it can get pretty quickly to northeast northeast Europe. Um, I think the, the, the current planning that's going on in the British Army and within NATO needs to examine whether the British Army role needs to be focused on northeast Europe, perhaps whether it needs to be focused on NATO's new north, which will include uh, Sweden and Finland and whether it should have a role in southern Europe. If, sh if so, uh, that would have some pretty significant uh, logistic and deployment implications. The Integrated Review, as it stands, aims to have a warfighting division ready to fight within NATO by 2030. Realistically, when do you think the earliest that can actually be achieved is? Well, I'll give credit to Ben Wallace here because he's got a sense of urgency on this. And he has recognised himself that the army is a generation behind its peers in terms of equipment. It's also a couple of generations behind the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. It's the least modernised of the three British services. Whether the money that's committed to address that modernisation is sufficient, I don't honest, honestly know. If I was the chief of the general staff, I'd, I'd be looking very closely at whether I'm going to achieve that division ready for 2030 and not just the flagship armoured vehicle and artillery but also whether the logistics stockpiles 
and the necessary strategic lift. And that doesn't just include ships and aircraft, but also unglamorous aspects like fuel tankers and particularly tank transporters for tracked armoured vehicles. Brigadier Benbury, I think we're going to have lots to talk talk about between now and 2030. Thank you so much for your time. Good to speak to you. My pleasure. So that has set out the problem, but what about the solution? The Defence Secretary has indicated he's already trying to speed up the modernisation of the army, even before a refresh of the integrated review is complete. For example, an interim artillery replacement for the AS-90 could be bought, and he's also looking at whether the fleet of upgraded Challenger 3 tanks needs to be bigger than the current plan. Well, let's get the thoughts now of Defence Analyst and Consultant Nicholas Drummond, a former Welsh Guards Infantry Officer. Nicholas, good to speak to you today. Uh, To get the Army more ready, more quickly, where does the money and effort need to be focused on rebuilding to get rapid results? Well, I think the first thing we have to be mindful of is the fact that there's going to be no new money before the next election. So in the short term, we're going to have to rearrange the assets that we've already got. And that creates a particular challenge for those responsible. That said, there are funded programs that are ongoing and they will deliver new capability. And I'm actually pretty confident that we can get an effective warfighting division by 2030. And the most important of those new capabilities is Boxer, which I'm I'm helping to deliver through my industrial relationships. And I'm very confident that Boxer will enable us to have a a step change in our ability to transport infantry from a theater entry point to where they're needed to take part in combat operations. So So Boxer fundamentally will be a key part of the new armored brigades. The second asset is uh, the Challenger 3, which and that program is also ongoing. And Ben Wallace alluded to in, in his speech in Parliament that he is looking at numbers. Um, and it might be possible to upgrade perhaps 200 or to take some of the other ones out of um, storage that could be reactivated. So to have 200 plus tanks would be a, a big, big boost. And that could give us perhaps four Type 44 regiments plus the four box infantry battalions. So that would be very capable. The really big area that we need to look at is artillery. And uh, we're looking at, at various options for the Mobiles Fast platform, which is a, a, an ongoing funded program. That really was not scheduled to deliver be- before 2027. And the question is, can we buy an, what, an interim capability and what should that be? And that's a difficult question to answer. I think there are three options. One would be to buy American M109s, which are readily available. M109A7, a very good system. Secondly, there's the Korean K9. Uh, and there is also the excellent German Panzerhauer 2000, which has been used very successfully in Ukraine. So those are the main elements that I think we would look at. The challenges and the decision-making there are really significant, aren't they? Is it, is it possible, everything that you're outlining? I think it is. I mean, you know, Challenger is already funded. Uh, that would need a slight um, uplift in the in the budget to deliver the extra hulls, but that could be achieved by rebalancing elsewhere. However, I think what we have to be mindful of is actually that warfare is evolving. So it's not just um, about tanks. So if we rob Peter to pay Paul, we could leave ourselves short in other new and much needed new capabilities. In particular, 
um, communication systems. Mm. Well, one suggestion to achieve all of this is to use the urgent operational requirements system created to speed up procurement for Iraq and Afghanistan. This is what the Defence Secretary had to say about that. Of course, the one elephant in the room on the suggestion of accelerating is Her Majesty's Treasury, who would have to reprofile the budget. And of course, as the time of the IR approaches, I shall engage with my right on the friend the Chancellor. Yeah, yeah. Reprofiling, that's basically spending the money they've already got faster. When the Defence Secretary seems pretty clear he wants more tanks and soldiers, can it be done by moving the current budget around or does it absolutely need more money, do you think? I, I think some things can be done by diverting expenditure from one programme to another. The army still has a reserve of cash that it has not allocated. So yes, there is definitely scope to do that. I think what there's not scope to do in the short term is to grow the size of the army. Let's be clear, I mean, Russia has lost 100,000 soldiers killed, wounded or missing. That, that's larger than the British army and that's in, in less than a year. So if we want to have resilience, we will need to be bigger than the current size. And do we have access to the defence manufacturing we need, do you think, if we're going to speed up the rebuilding of the army? You've already indicated that we may have to buy things ready-made to, to fill capability gaps. Yes, exactly. I mean, we don't make enough things here anymore in the UK. And if we want to make them here, and we do want to do that, setting up a UK production line for a foreign-designed piece of equipment takes about two years. And when do you think the army will be capable, in a capable shape, to fight in Europe if needed? Well, it's capable today, actually. I mean, as Ben Barry quite correctly outlined, you know, we've got 16 uh, airborne brigade, three commander brigade, the ranger regiment, a light mechanized brigade, all ready to go, supported by the uh, Apache helicopter and the other aviation regiments. So that force could very quickly deploy and would be highly effective. Remember, we've got anti-tank weapons like Javelin and Enlaw in abundance. Uh, we've got good stocks of, of 155mm artillery shells. You know, we, we can definitely deliver effect today. Nicholas Drummond, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Now, it's not just the UK grappling with the need to significantly improve military capability. Every NATO member is facing a much bigger potential ask. The alliance agreed last year to a sevenfold increase in its high readiness forces to more than 300,000 troops. Who will promise what is still being decided with the most senior uniform decision makers meeting this week. Ahead of that military committee meeting, NATO's top operational commander, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, General Christopher Cavoli, delivered a hardball message during a speech in Sweden. Hard power is a reality. Soft power is good and useful and even necessary. And integrated deterrence, of course, relies on all elements of national power, economic, diplomatic, informational. But the great irreducible feature of warfare is hard power. And we have to be good at it. Second, kinetic effects are what produce results on the battlefield. Cyber, information operations, and so on, very important. But if the other guy shows up with the tank, you better have a tank. Well, let's talk now to Dr. Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO. Uh, good to speak to you today. I called that a hardball message. Who do you think it was aimed at? Well, definitely the NATO member state governments. 
and their ministries of uh, defense. I mean, General Cavoli was making really sort of two comments. Number one, that, you know, the days when we thought that the threats uh, to NATO would essentially be soft kind of threats, you know, in a hybrid domain, uh, cyber attacks, the occasional sort of intelligence operation or act of sabotage, those days are over. Uh, we now confront the reality of the Russian army and notwithstanding the difficulties that the Russians have had in Ukraine, they're continuing to invest in their military. And in even uh, yesterday, General uh, Shoigu, the Russian chief of defense, announced that they're going to go up to uh, 1.5 million overall soldiers. Uh, so NATO needs that kind of hard power. The second message he's conveying is that, you know, after Russia invaded Crimea back in 2014 and annexed Crimea, there was a sense that simply being present on your eastern borders would be sufficient for deterrence. You didn't actually need to have a war fighting capability. You just needed to be there. Now, General Cavoli is saying that's not good enough any longer. The forces that NATO has mustn't just show up. They have to be able to fight and win as well. Top military officers like General Cavoli work with clearly defined but very thin red lines between what they privately say to their political masters and what they say in public. Do you think he's crossed that line into sharing his policy thinking, however rational it may seem? Uh, no, I don't. I think you know the NATO military commanders, and he's the supreme allied commander of Europe, they have a public duty to say exactly what their needs are. I mean, General Cavoli, rightly, as a NATO public servant, wasn't pointing the finger at uh, any particular country or any particular individual. That's always difficult. He was making remarks in general. But he's also simply reflecting what NATO itself has decided to do. Uh, you pointed out, Kate, uh, to the Madrid summit last year of NATO, where the decision was taken to turn uh, battalions in Eastern Europe into NATO brigades uh, with heavy equipment to uh, step up air and missile defense, to have more demanding combined arms exercises, and as you said, to increase the rapid response forces from 40,000 to 300,000. So all he's doing is to say, look, <laughs> those decisions are very well, uh, but they've got to be implemented, otherwise they won't count. How committed do you think member states are to doing their bit? Well, I think the penny has dropped and you do see, of course, Kate, first and foremost, the increase in the defence budgets. All NATO member states have now come up with plans to meet the 2% benchmark. NATO, ahead of its next summit in Vilnius, is going to start a discussion on maybe uh, increasing that above 2%, at least making 2% the sort of the floor rather than the ceiling for that kind of effort. The Germans have uh, agreed to give 100 billion extra euros to modernize the Bundeswehr. So in terms of budgetary effort on behalf, particularly of the Europeans, the money is, is coming in. What is going to count is to invest it wisely uh, by the right things. Now, there are two problems here. Number one is after the Cold War, NATO got rid of a lot of the heavy armor that it now needs. For example, the Dutch had 700 main battle tanks. They sold a lot. The Germans had about 3,000 and they went down to 300. So within the NATO perimeter, there is this this need, obviously, to reproduce this heavy equipment. Uh, uh, the Germans, for example, had a law that didn't allow them to keep stocks in reserve uh, of main uh, battle tanks. But the other problem is that a lot of this armor is now being transferred to Ukraine. So the more, of course, NATO transfers uh, uh, things that it needs itself, like tanks or, or aircraft, missile defense, Patriot batteries. Uh, the Netherlands agreed, for example, yesterday to send one of them to Ukraine as well. The more it needs to ramp up industrial production to resupply its own forces, given that NATO not only sees a threat to Ukraine from the Russian army, but a threat to itself. So it has to produce twice. And I think that's going to be the significant challenge moving forward. 
But isn't there also a significant challenge in people numbers? Because an increase of the high readiness from 40,000 to 300,000 is immense. It's almost the same as starting from scratch. Is that achievable? Well, it's not going to be done overnight, but at least it's a it's a planning target. And of course, NATO, like with the 2% benchmark on defence spending, needs a planning target to sort of benchmark the performance of its member states and to drive the uh, process uh, uh, forward. But if you look, for example, at the numbers of forces that Europe has on paper, uh, in NATO Europe, it's about 1.6 million. So uh, where are those soldiers? What are they doing? And we've seen traditionally, uh, as you know, Kate, very well, many NATO countries uh, struggle out of that pool of 1.6 million uh, on the books to put together uh, deployments, for example, uh, in Africa, counter-terrorist missions of more than three or four thousand at a single uh, time. So there is a need, if you like, to convert passive soldiers into active soldiers. But if you look at the absolute numbers, a target of 300,000 actually usable troops uh, wouldn't seem to be uh, unrealistic, Uh, but it will take time. Uh, The key thing to my mind initially is is to be able to convert um, into effective battle groups uh, the rather small and lightly uh, uh, armed uh, battalions that NATO has formed since 2014 in Poland, in the Baltic states, and now uh, in the Black Sea uh, uh, area. Um, uh, but of course, uh, a lot of those forces are going to be uh, in a, a reserve. The addition of Finland and Sweden, providing of course Turkey uh, moves on that, will help enormously because Finland alone, when it joins NATO will bring seven uh, uh, equipped, modernized, uh, armored brigades into the alliance. And that number actually by itself would go some way to constituting about you know, one third of the total of 300,000, which NATO uh, uh, wants to, to achieve. Dr. Jamie Shea, good to speak to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Sidrep. Finally this week, the story of two injured Ukrainian soldiers who are now getting bionic hands. The British company behind the technology teamed up with a Ukrainian charity to take the men to Germany for their first fittings. But as James Hurst explains, it's just a first step towards delivering the life-changing prosthetics to many more Ukrainians in the home country. In an office in Munich, Vitali is trying out the hero arm for the first time. The motorised fingers and thumb on the end of this green plastic prosthetic arm will replace the left hand that Vitali lost when a mine exploded. It's a very cool feeling, he says. I'm pleased that I have an opportunity to get such a functional prosthetic. To start with, Vitaly and his colleague Andrei use their undamaged fingers to activate sensors inside the hero arm. Once they understand how it works, the prosthetic is fitted to their damaged limb and technicians guide them on how to move the bionic hand while wearing the arm. And then, good, and relax, and again. It's made using 3D printing and it's got uh, two myoelectric sensors inside. Joel Gibbard is co-founder of Open Bionics, which makes these arms. So if I touch one of those, it's going to simulate a muscle signal and that's going to close the fingers and the one on the on the outside is going to open the fingers. So that's how it's controlled. Um, the, the person wearing it would be contracting their muscles, thinking about doing these kind of movements and they'll translate to similar movements on the bionic hand. Open again. Good. Okay. 
With some practice behind them, Vitaly and Andre are picking up drinks, handling tennis balls and unplugging phone chargers. Vitaly says, when the electrodes were applied and I had the opportunity to test this prosthesis, I just enjoyed it. It's not just about function, it's very much about mental health and, and psychological uh, impact as well. Open Bionics wants many more Ukrainians to get these life-changing limbs and to get them much closer to home. So it's working with a Ukrainian charity, Superhumans, which is led by Olga Rudneva. And we saw a lot of people are losing their limbs and a lot of injuries, and we decided that we can build the Center for Prothesis and for Reconstructive Surgery and for Rehabilitation. And that's how the idea of Superhuman Center uh, arised. And we are building it right now. It should start operating in the end of April. And we're expecting to, you know, to serve like thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians by providing them new possibilities and new limbs and, uh, you know, just bringing them back life. The need is great after a year of war and the toll will only keep rising in the country that the UN says is the most mined territory in the world. Ukraine has had little good news over the last year but this life-changing bionic device created by a startup in Bristol should bring some fresh hope to hundreds of Ukrainians who've suffered some of the worst consequences of Russia's invasion. James Hurst reporting, and that's all for this week. Thank you to all of our guests. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home at bfps.com slash SITREP, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 